Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Genesis 33, 1 through 15. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the woman and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children of God. They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, Accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we all uh, have a rear view mirror. And in case there's any uh, true New York City people that don't know what a rear view mirror is, it's that little mirror up in front of a car that lets you look behind you uh, to see what is uh, behind you. We all have a rear view mirror in which all of our life experiences exist. Meaning we can, we can look into that mirror and have, a, of course, a sense of what has taken place in the past. And as we look at in our rearview mirror, seeing what is behind us, there, of course, are uh, joyous experiences back there. Right? We look back there and we can, we can be teleported back to good places, good experiences. Of course, as we look into that rearview mirror, there's also other kinds of experiences. Maybe as we look into that rearview mirror, there are painful memories, painful experiences as well. But the reality is, is that whatever we see when we look 
at the rearview mirror, whatever we see behind us has in many ways made us who we are today and also in many ways sets the path that we find ourselves on right now. And in this story that we just heard read, that's exactly what we're seeing. It's a story that reminds us that we can actually never fully escape that which we see in our rearview mirror. There's no getting away from it. The reality is that what's behind us very much shapes what is before us. The question is, how are we going to address what is back there? How are we going to confront that which we see in our rearview mirror? Now today, we, uh, we continue our series in the beginning. Uh, this has been a, a look at the story of Genesis. Uh, and today, we're going to continue to look at the life of Jacob, the younger son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Uh, and here in our passage, what we see is Jacob trying to deal with that which is in his rearview mirror. Because what has been in his rearview mirror is now catching up with him. And for us, I think there's actually a lot that we can learn about how we deal with what's in our rearview mirror by looking at how Jacob is also dealing with what's in his rearview mirror. So let's learn, let's see what we can learn by considering first Jacob's rearview mirror. What is it exactly that's back there for him? Let's take a look at Jacob's uncertain path that he finds himself on. And then finally, let's take a look at Jacob's new way forward. Okay, so first, Jacob's rearview mirror. So over the last several weeks, we have considered, this is pretty much what we've been considering, all the events that kind of took place in Jacob's life. Uh, we've been looking at everything that he would see in his rearview mirror. Uh, Jacob's story, if you remember, uh, really begins with uh, the schemes that he creates. Right? He creates this scheme along with his mother uh, to deceive his father Isaac uh, and his brother Esau in order that he might take for himself the inheritance that would have rightly been due to his brother. Uh, he also uh, steals and schemes uh, away the family blessing that would have likely gone to his older brother Esau, but now goes to him. This deception, however, completely upends his family because now, uh, as a result of all this scheming, his brother, who is obviously furious over all of this deception, wants to kill him. And so as a result, Jacob runs away. And when he runs away, he ends up uh, in the house of Laban, where through another series of deceptions and lies, uh, Jacob ends up marrying both Leah and Rachel. As a result of those deceptions and selfishness uh, interwoven into their story, there are deep, deep wounds created uh, in this family. If you're interested in hearing more about that, you can listen to the sermon from a couple of weeks ago. But then, after spending many years with Laban, and this is where we've kind of skipped over a bit of this uh, in the narrative, after spending many years with Laban, uh, when, he, when Jacob realizes that the people that he's with, particularly his brother-in-laws, brother don't like him, he decides to sneak off. And again, he runs away. Laban, as a result of this, actually gets very angry with Jacob. It's a whole mess. You can go back and read the story. What I find fascinating, though, about this, uh, this narrative for Jacob is that Jacob just cannot, it doesn't seem like he can help himself. He is constantly creating tensions by being selfish or self-serving, and then he runs away. He tries to escape his problems. Jacob has this rearview mirror full of really shameful things. He has ruined families. He has used people. He has been selfish and self-serving, and as a result, 
there's a whole trail of broken people that he's been willing to run over. And he looks in that rearview mirror, that's what he's going to see back there. Now, with that in mind, that said, there is actually, and we've said this a lot, there's a lot of cultural difference between, distance between where we are now and Jacob, but there's actually a lot to that story that I actually think is very contemporary because we all, too, again, have a rearview mirror. Right? When we look behind us, there are probably things back there that we wish we had done differently. There are things that we see in that mirror that we regret, things that we are ashamed of, things that we know might not ever really be fixed because of what we did. Plus, while there's certainly things in that mirror uh, that we did, we also know that more than likely when we look at that mirror, there's also a lot that we see that has been done to us, thus creating shame. When we look in that rearview mirror, we see the bad decisions of other people that have in various ways connected to our own bad decisions that we make now. It's very hard to disconnect those things, right? So when we look at our rearview mirror, we also often can find a mess. And the bottom line is that for many, that mess can be very hard to process and navigate. How do we deal with what's back there? Again, sure, maybe we look back there and there's moments of gratitude, moments of joy, but often even those moments can be tainted by the brokenness that exists back there as well. And for many, like Jacob, instead of trying to deal with what's back there, isn't it often easier to just try and escape, try to run away from whatever might be back there? I mean, for him, he was literally running away. He created problems and he literally ran from them. But there are a lot of different ways to try to run away from the brokenness that exists in our rearview mirror. And think about the ways that we do it all the time. If we want to get away from what's back there, sometimes we bury ourselves in work. We want to just be so busy that we don't really have to deal with the mess that's back there. Or we surround ourselves with people or relationships that we hope will provide us some stability now so that we don't have to deal with what's back there in that rearview mirror. We can lose ourselves in movies or books or video games so that we can try to experience the the life of someone else so that we can distract ourselves from having to deal with our own life. We become obsessed with hobbies or activities or shopping or anything to try to distract ourselves. We get lost in the, the rabbit hole of social media to try to bolster our sense of self so we don't have to deal with the deep insecurities and inadequacies produced by what's back there. You know, we can get uh, addicted to substances or sex or other kinds of experiences so that we just numb the pain produced by whatever is back there. And it's all an escape. It's all an attempt to try and run away, not have to actually deal with what's back there. But as we saw last week, An interesting thing happens in Jacob's life. What we saw last week is that Jacob, who has been this man who has spent his life upending the lives of other people and then running away, he ends up having this encounter with God that begins to confront this tendency in him. If you remember, uh, Pastor Abe last week looked at how Jacob is renamed by God as Israel. That Jacob in that moment becomes this new man. He's not the same man that he was when he looks into that rearview mirror. He's different now. 
And as we step into the story that we just heard read, he comes to this experience a different man. He's been transformed. But because he's been transformed, his path now becomes very uncertain. Because Jacob, again, he had this tendency, run away. That was the way to go. That was what he did. But now that he's been transformed, something different is going to need to happen. He's going to need to start to confront some things. But now there's uncertainty before him, now that he's experienced this transformation. And so it's important for us to consider why that path is so uncertain. Let's take a look at that. Uh, the reason for this uncertainty is what was, again, in his rearview mirror has now caught up with him. Look again at, at verse 1. So Jacob looked up, and there was Esau, right? His brother, the one that he had deceived, there was Esau, coming with his 400 men. Let me pause there for a second. Though Jacob had this transformation with, uh, before God, that does not change the fact that his brother, and also be reminded, Esau, the guy who was known for strength and bruteness, that brother who wanted him dead is now before Jacob. And Jacob has no idea how this is going to go. When the consequences of our sin catch up to us, there really is no confidence in what the outcome is going to be. And here's the reason why. Sin and the reality of sin is one that because of the brokenness and the fallenness of the world that we live in, sin complicates life. It really does. Sin complicates life to the, to the point that we can never actually get fully past what is in our rear view mirror. In many ways, like Jacob and Esau, we might have, maybe we try to move on with our lives, try to live our lives. Maybe we, we go about life building a family figuratively or literally, and we really have no interest in revisiting the brokenness of the past. But that does not change the fact that the brokenness is there. It doesn't change what's behind us. And at this point, Jacob, who has been trying to get away from all of this, has no idea how Esau is going to respond because sin has consequences and it complicates life, even though he's had this transformation. I mean, consider the possible scenarios, right? Consider how this might actually end up rolling out. There's various ways it could happen. One thing that could happen is Jacob could very well, at this moment, be living the last moments of his life. You know, it's my guess that no one would hold it against Esau if he decided to follow through with what he threatened, which was to kill his brother Jacob. Esau had been betrayed, he'd been deceived, and he might very well want Jacob to pay for what he did. And for many, it would have been fine because Jacob kind of deserved it. So that's one scenario. Jacob could be living the final moments of his life. Another scenario here is that Jacob might want Esau to forgive him, but there is no guarantee that he will actually experience that forgiveness. Jacob doesn't have any control about whether or not Esau decides to forgive him. And so Jacob might want it. Esau might not give it. That's another scenario. A third scenario might be that Esau might forgive Jacob, but because of what Jacob did, he might not want anything to do with Jacob going forward. You know, Jacob might want a restored relationship with Esau, but it's really up to Esau the extent to which they're going to have a relationship again. He may want it, he may not. 
even if there is some kind of forgiveness that's there. And here's what I find fascinating. Here's why I'm, I'm framing all this to say that sin is complicated. Every one of those scenarios has some validity to them. Right? Sin creates complexities that are not easily resolved. All of those scenarios could in some way make sense. And here's why I bring this up, is that there are realities in our rearview mirror that are not easy to deal with. We might look back there and we want people who have hurt us to pay for what they did in ways that we determine to be sufficient for them to pay. But the reality is, is that might not happen. And as a result, if things don't happen the way that we think that they should happen, it can be very easy for us to fall into anger and resentment. Or we might look back and we see people that, again, who have hurt us, who are now in front of us wanting a restored relationship, but we know we just cannot be around them for our own emotional or mental health. For our sake, we need to keep strict boundaries as a result of the sin that was against us. We might look back and see people in our UV mirror, maybe that we have hurt, who we wish could be restored to us, but they have chosen as a result of our sin against them that it's not something that they want. I mean, the point is that sin complicates life in profound ways, and there's too often no obvious solution, leaving the road ahead quite uncertain. And unless we realize that dynamic, we might, really, we might end up possessing really unrealistic expectations about what might occur. Jacob, like all of us, does not know what is ahead and as a result, as a result of what is behind, but because he's had this radical change, this confrontation with God, he actually moves forward quite differently than he has in the past. Right? He doesn't run away. Right? Despite the complication, his transformation leads him to trust the Lord in a new way. To trust the Lord has a plan that very well might leave him under the vengeance of his brother. But because of what God has done, he decides to move forward anyway, and he confronts his past. He confronts the issues and the brokenness that exist in his rearview mirror, and now he stands before his brother. And so we have to now see this new way forward. Right? Jacob has had this transformation, so now what? What is the next step? What is, what is going to actually now happen while we see that in our passage? So let's finally look at that. Now, as, we've, as we heard read, Esau's reaction to Jacob is actually quite remarkable. Jacob, who uh, comes in humility and great deference to his brother, is not met with wrath. You would have expected Esau to meet Jacob with wrath. But look again at uh, verse 4. This is how Esau actually responds. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. What's phenomenal about this, this uh, narrative here is that Esau, he forgives and he embraces his brother. It's a remarkable scene of reconciliation that takes place here. And you know what this reminds me of, the way this narrative rolls out? It actually reminds me of the, the climax of, of Jesus' famous parable, the prodigal son. 
If you remember that story, the prodigal son uh, had taken his father's inheritance. Uh, he went off and he lived this self-serving wild life, a life that ended up leaving him with absolutely nothing. And so as a result, this prodigal son returns to his father. Now, what I find uh, fascinating about the father's response in that story is that it's very similar to Esau's response here when he sees his brother. Both of them run out to meet their estranged kin. Both of them embrace this estranged family member and weep over their return. And they do so, what I also find interesting, they do so before any groveling or any pleas for mercy actually take place. In other words, the father and Esau did not first make you know, their son or brother, respectively, make some kind of amends before embracing them. Instead, they were just so overjoyed by the return. We cannot miss that this is significant, especially as we think about what this entire story is supposed to be leading us toward. This entire story is reminding us of the significance of reconciliation between two parties that are at odds with one another. We also cannot miss a very key posture that we see in both the prodigal son and also in Jacob. What we see here is they both had this great humility as they approached this uh, broken relationship. The prodigal son was deeply humbled and he realized how far that he had fallen before returning to his father. Jacob realized how his pursuits of greatness had devastated his family and had dishonored God. But in that humility, when they came with that humility, that sense of realizing the depths of their, their uh, failures, when they come, they don't find condemnation and wrath. Instead, both of them experience and embrace, not wrath, but an embrace. And my friends, first and foremost, this kind of reconciliation is a picture of the reconciliation that happens at a cosmic level. What we see here points us to gospel reconciliation. This is the way that God himself interacts with us. I mean, like the, the prodigal son, we have so often squandered the goodness of God that's been bestowed upon, upon us. We have taken good gifts that he's given us, and we've used them for our own glory or for our own pleasure, leaving him behind and ignoring him completely in our view of your mirror. Or maybe we're like Jacob, and we've sought the glory of our own name, or we've schemed and, uh, to fulfill our own sense of need, or we've used people along the way and cared more about ourselves than others. But the hope of reconciliation is that when we, like the prodigal son, like Jacob, realize the extent of our wandering, of our squandering, of our self-glorifying, and as a result, return in humility, we don't find condemnation and wrath, both of which would have been justified. But instead, we find embrace from the one who might otherwise be justified in condemnation. I mean, this is what the gospel is. It's our ability to come, realizing the depths of our failures, and as a result, experience and embrace. And here's what I find to be powerful, is that real healing, real restoration, it often comes when the offended one embraces the offender who comes in humility 
in deference, meaning that reconciliation is impossible unless the one who was offended is willing to embrace us. You know, if, if, I, if I hurt someone, it is not my decision about when and if reconciliation takes place. I can't hurt someone and say, listen, you need to get over it. We need to reconcile. That's not how it works. Rather, true reconciliation occurs when I come not with demands, but with humility, realizing the depths of my failure, and then the person that I hurt embraces me. That's where reconciliation occurs. That's where healing can begin to occur. And that, my friends, is God's love for us. In Jesus, we find an elder brother who, like Esau, is maybe unexpectedly generous and merciful and loving and overjoyed by the return of the one he loves. Jesus Christ is that tear-filled embrace. God incarnate welcoming us as we come in humility, recognizing our failures and sin that might be in that rearview mirror, and as a result, trusting in him. This is what reconciliation and healing looks like. The story that we just heard read is a picture of what God in Christ is accomplishing, accomplishing for us. And yes, sin it complicates life in ways that make it hard to navigate. But before God, we can have confidence that we will find welcome and that embrace. And that while the consequences of sin might still remain for us right now, we can still experience the embrace from God. It's what creates a new way forward for us. Now, with that in mind, I want to I end in this way. I'm trying to put some practicalities to a lot of what I just said. Because all of us in this room are Jacobs before God, for sure. And the reconciliation that we need is found in our humility before God, and as a result, us experiencing that loving embrace that comes in Jesus. We're all Jacobs. We all desire and need that embrace. So in one sense, you're Jacob. But in another sense, all of us here are Jacobs and or Esau's with respect to others. Hey, we're Jacobs before God, but we might be Jacobs or Esau's in relation to one another. And what I mean is that some of us here are Jacobs in that we have sinned against others and we have hurt them deeply. And if that is you, our takeaway from all of this must be that first we need to have a confrontation with God. We need to have this reconciliation with God. We need to experience this embrace from God because that produces humility in us and a willingness to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused before we can pursue any kind of reconciliation with the person that we've actually hurt. It's important for us to recognize the extent to which in relation to other people, we cannot experience a reconciliation, a healing of that relationship with others until we're willing to acknowledge our failures and to come in humility. And like Jacob, after his confrontation with God and his transformation, you have no idea how the other party is going to respond to you, nor can you control it. Right? You very well might come in humility. You might very well acknowledge the depths of your failure. You can't control, though, how they respond. But that changes nothing 
about the posture of humility that we absolutely must possess before God and others, especially those that we've hurt. And so if we're Jacobs, we need to recognize the importance of that posture of humility. But some of us here, maybe we more identify with Esau in this story, meaning you have been deeply hurt by others. And so you're hearing me talk about this story of reconciliation, and the first thing that starts coming to your head is that you cannot fathom having a restored relationship with the ones that have hurt you in the past. And if that is you, I hear you. And I want you to know that there very well might be circumstances where an ongoing relationship is just not possible because of the depth of pain that these individuals may have caused, uh, caused in the past. And I need to acknowledge that for some, and I know many of your stories, that for some it would just be too much. And for what it's worth, it's at least noting Esau and Jacob, if you read on in the story, they actually don't end up having some deep relationship with one another. It's not in our passage, but uh, Jacob goes one way and Esau ends up going another way. And the reality is, is that on this side of eternity, complete healing of broken relationship might not actually be possible. Right? True healing is not a reality that we will experience now. True healing is something that happens one day when Jesus comes, and so it's okay. If there's maybe not the opportunity to have this deep, ongoing relationship. But whether we are Esau's or Jacob's, it's important to note that it's the humility of recognizing who we are before God and the brokenness of others that's going to be key. You know, one of, the, one of the things that I'm reminded of is Paul's words in Romans 12. Paul is discussing what uh, love looks like in action. And this is what Paul, Paul says. Paul says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And then it goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, to the best of our ability, as far as it depends on us, is there possibility for peace? And even more, for those who have been hurt, if the Lord does a work in the heart of the one who has hurt you, a work that does bring them to humility and a willingness to acknowledge their wrongdoing, is there a desire by the empowerment of the Spirit to meet that person, not with vengeance and wrath, but with an embrace? Now, that, that embrace might come with particular boundaries that can't be crossed, but in your heart of hearts, is there a willingness to not overcome evil with evil, but to overcome evil with good? To remember what Jesus has done for us in his forgiveness, and then allow that forgiveness to shape how we understand the forgiveness of others. And I'm going to end here. I've kind of been confronted with a very real-life uh, experience of all that I've said uh, thus far. The last couple of weeks have actually been a really jarring couple of weeks. And as I prepared for today, I, I couldn't help but think about some, um, some events that have happened uh, in, my, in my life recently. Um, some of you maybe have seen this, but there's been this story in the news. Uh, it actually hit international news. But about two weeks ago, 
there was a family, uh, a husband, uh, his wife, and their three kids, the youngest of those kids uh, being an 18-month-old, who were visiting the husband's sister in Montana. Uh, and while they were there, someone that the sister knew attempted to kill the entire family. Uh, first, he attempted to run them over with his truck. When, uh, when that did not work, he exited this truck with a shotgun and attacked them. And then finally, with a knife in the end, after this attack, uh, the husband and their 18-month-old baby were murdered. And the wife and the sister were left in critical condition. Now, that husband and father that was killed uh, was actually one of my best friends growing up. Uh, there were four of us in high school, super close. Um, we were even in a band together. Uh, David, who was the, the father and husband, he was our bass player in our band. He was also one of the groomsmen in my wedding. Uh, of course, it's been super surreal. All this has been so surreal. But I tell you that story, and I'm drawing on that story right now, um, it's been very applicable. And there's a few reasons why I put it in front of you. The first is if you think about it, pray for that family, the CEO family. It's been uh, devastating, as you could imagine. But the second reason why I put it, in, uh, put it in front of you is David's father, David, the again, my friend, David's father, John, a man that I've known since I was very, very little. Uh, he actually, um, over the past week, released a statement uh, where he's drawing on the Lord's Prayer noting the importance of Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. And he said something that struck me and that has stuck with me as I've been processing what's, uh, our passage today. John, the father, he says this. He, again, drawing from Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer, he says, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we uh, forgive those who trespass against us. And with that in mind, John says this. He says, certainly our family has had terrible trespasses committed against us. But our goal is to forgive. Here's what strikes me about that. The first thing that strikes me about that is the forgiveness of God toward us is the basis for our ability to forgive. Remembering what Jesus has done and the forgiveness that he extends is what empowers us to forgive others. But I also appreciated the way that he put it. He said, our goal is to forgive. Right? What that says to me is it's realistic. It says that it's, forgiveness is not something that's going to come easy or quickly or even enthusiastically. Sometimes it's just a goal, something that we need to work towards, something that is a process. But because of the forgiveness we experience in Jesus, it remains a goal nonetheless. And so whether we are here in this room as Jacob's or as Esau's or both, we must keep Jesus and his grace toward us at the center of our lives and allow that to shape us in such a way that we then are able to deal with whatever might be in that rearview mirror. The grace of God is what gives us the ability to deal with whatever is back there. And whatever is back there, there's no escaping it. There's no outrunning it. There's no distracting ourselves from it. Things will catch up to us at some point if we don't deal with it. And when they, do, when they do catch up, we cannot be entirely sure always the way forward. This side of eternity, it's going to be complicated. It will remain complicated. But Jesus 
is our source of strength to be a people who are nonetheless, in the midst of that uncertainty, humble and gracious and merciful and forgiving. Because in Jesus, we've experienced and benefited from the fullness of his humility, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. And so my hope would be for all of us, no matter where we might be or what we have in that rearview mirror, the grace of Jesus would be central to how we deal with whatever may be behind us. May the Spirit of God help us do that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are fully aware of all that's uh, behind us. You're fully aware of the brokenness and the sin and the pain and the hurt that has been inflicted on us or that maybe we have inflicted on others. God, you're fully aware of the complexities that come as a result of sin, as a result of what's behind us. But Lord, I do pray that you would help us have wisdom in knowing how to confront those things, but ultimately to do so rooted and centered and grounded in the grace of Jesus. That we would remember what he has accomplished for us. That we remember that we are forgiven. That in him we will experience full healing and restoration. And that would produce for us a strength. It would also produce for us wisdom. And Lord, would you make us a people that are able to reflect the beauty of what you have done in Jesus to a world that is so desperately in need of it. There are so few places where people get to experience grace and forgiveness and mercy. And so make us a people that reflect you and your kindness in the ways that we interact with others. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.